Good morning and welcome to Getting Results with Mark Sacosta Rubio. So this is another fantastic podcast that I thoroughly enjoyed. David Allen is an icon in productivity and was voted, I think, one of the 100, 100 smartest men by Fast Magazine a long time ago. And if you don't know who David Allen is or the GTD methodology, getting things done, then you've either been living under a rock or just not interested in productivity and getting results. What's interesting about David is the levels of layers that he has when chatting with him about all the topics that he knows about and also practices on spirituality, productivity, relationships, uh, all kinds of cool stuff. I did my absolute best in the in this podcast to ask him questions that he doesn't normally get asked because we can go down to a bunch of different interviews that he's had and you know the answers are the same, not that they're canned, although I'm guessing they are, but it's that the answers don't change. If you ask the same question, you're going to get usually the same answer from somebody like David Allen, who's been around for so long and understands the methodology super well. So I tried not to focus too much on getting things done in terms of the methodology, although we did touch on that, but rather ask him about success and happiness. And I'm, I was trying to tease out from him, you know, what does he actually do on a regular basis? And does he do anything different? And I think you'll find two things that we haven't seen before from David. One is that David truly, really does live the methodology in the sense that when he gets up in the morning, other than it's on his calendar, he really does fly by the seat of his pants, goes intuitive. Now, I did ask him the difference between being 75 and being 55 or 50 when he started really promoting the GTD methodology. Are things different? I think patience, relaxation, intuitiveness, wisdom, I think those are things that that he now has that he didn't have at that, you know, 50, 55 years of age, 20, 25 years ago. But nothing's really changed other than he's just gotten better at it. However, we did dwell into spirituality, and he says with a small s. And here's, I think, what is interesting and probably unique to David's interview this time around that he didn't have or hasn't, I haven't heard in all the other interviews and or talks and or podcasts, is I wanted to find out from him what started him moving in this idea of taking the invisible to the visible, right? Because if we go back to Think and Grow Rich and Napoleon Hill or Water Swallows or Orson Swed Martin back in the you know 1800s or 1937 when Think and Rich came out, you realize that all they were trying to tell us is how to use our brain to take ideas and make them a reality. Whether it's experiential or, or you know, products or you know, achievements, it doesn't matter. And so David had this fascination at an early age when he had what our good friend Richard Koch, and if you haven't listened to that podcast, you should. It's here on the podcast. Richard Koch, in his new book that's coming out called Unreasonable Success, talks about a transformative experience. And so what was David Allen's transformative experience? What was the thing that triggered him to not be a you know, regular boy from, I guess it was Louisiana or Texas, you know, and just kind of grow up and have a regular job versus sort of this iconic productivity uh, expert, right? And he moved to a particular country. I think it was Switzerland at the time. And then he grew up in the 60s and went to a certain college. And I think, you know, he calls it mini epiphany. But I think it was that cultural shift that made him realize, especially when he got into some spirituality component, that there was something more than the eye could see right? Like transformers more than meets the eyes, right? Something more than the eye can see. And he says that he saw it as is. And then later, as he got older and wiser, he began to ask himself, you know, what do I do with this? And I think you're going to find this very common among most of the people that will interview is there is a transformative experience. There is something that allows them to sort of take the red pill in the matrix 
and see something that most of us either didn't see early on, do see now, or haven't seen yet, or looking forward to seeing. And I think that was sort of the, the impetus to Genesis for David's undertaking of, okay, well, so how do I make that happen? And that journey for him through, you know, personal growth and development and all these other components led him to where he is today or where he was 25, 30 years ago when he first started doing GTD. So super interesting. There's a lot to tease out from the things that he says. And even though sometimes we get a little bit, not esoteric, um, but, you know, spiritual, the small S, it truly is about productivity because at the end of the day, getting results is about deciding what you want and then making it a reality and enjoying the process along the way, right? And, you know, how do we get there more elegantly and efficiently and, and even easier? And using the GTD methodology gets us there easier, faster, more elegantly, and with less effort. In fact, I asked him about the 80-20 principle because, you know, I'm a big fan of the 80-20 principle and I love Richard Kosh and he's, you know, in these podcasts and he's got a really super interesting answer. So go ahead and take a listen. Again, it might seem a bit long, but it's not long enough in my opinion. I'd like to have David back again so we can have more chat about some of these topics. And if you have any comments or any suggestions, by all means, please click on the link below, add him or send me an email. And without further ado, here is the David Allen interview. So let me ask you this then. So why the fascination with the intangible to the tangible? Why start there? Uh, I think just because it's part of my nature uh, is that I've always intuited that there's another world, that there are other worlds other than what we see. Um, you know, and, and I've attempted to explore that in whatever ways my little puny little personality and, and intelligence could try to understand those at my different ages and maturity and times in my life. Um, so again, my first job was a magician at age five. So I'll, already then I was sort of fascinated by what you couldn't see and make things happen and make it cool. And that was one of my 35 jobs was being a, a magician, did kids birthday parties and so forth and did magic tricks. Uh, so, you know, that, that, that started back then. And then, you know, I got very interested in, um, I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do when I grew up. So I guess my first thoughts were maybe lawyer or something, because I was debate, a debater in high school. And, uh, you know, kind of then had training in taking some conceptual or an abstract idea or something like that and and making it, you know, somewhat concrete and convincing people to buy into a certain point of view. Uh, interesting, because I, our debate team had to, had to debate both the positive and the negatives, you know, for, you know, it was the National Forensic League. You know, every year they have a national topic that the, that the NFL not that's not national football like it's a forensic league you know so that that all the all the high school kids that were debaters all you know if they were part of the the nfl they all had to debate the same topic uh like uh federal aid to education was one during those years and this is back in the back in the 60s when i was in high school so I figured, well, but the only path maybe for me or the path to take would be being a, a, a lawyer, I guess, or something, because that's, that's what do, good debaters did once they became good attorneys. And uh, But then I had the opportunity to go to Switzerland as an exchange student with the American Field Service. So in 1963-64, I took off and was one of 300 
uh, U.S. kids that were accepted by some foreign families to live with them for a year. So I lived with a Swiss family for a year in Zurich, in Switzerland. And uh, of course, I went to school in there, the high school that the kids and the family were going to, which happened to be one of the best, you know, sort of pre-university uh, high schools in Europe. But I was a block away from the Kunsthaus in Zurich, which which had Monet's water lilies on the walls. And I was three blocks from the Cafe Odeon, which is where Dadaism started, and where Jung, you know, hung out and wrote read read newspapers. And so I got introduced to the world of you know culture and art and a very sophisticated level of sort of thinking, et cetera. So that was that was so when I came back, I was you know, to the U.S., I was, I, I was said, okay, something about the liberal arts, something about, you know, art and culture was what was more intriguing to me and interesting to me in that way. And of course, anything about art, you know, has a lot to do with what you can't see and somehow making something uh, tangible that allows people to go out beyond themselves or to somehow expand themselves or extend themselves or to, you know, um, see something they hadn't seen before. A lot was that. I also had, interestingly, I had a had a half sister. My father had been married before he married my mom, and and in that marriage, it had a daughter. So she was my half sister, a good bit older than me, you know, twenty plus years older than me. And then she wound up marrying um, a guy named John Cleland Holmes. And if you uh, ever wanted to study the history of the Beat Generation, uh, John and Shirley, my sister, were good friends with Kerouac and Ginsburg and so forth, and John. And Kerouac actually coined the term beat uh, in New York together. They saw a kid walking down in Central Park going like this. And the whole idea, the whole concept of the word of beat, you know, my brother-in-law, you know, was in. So, and, and I got, my dad died when I was nine. And my mom decided to take me to Connecticut where Shirley and John lived. And I got a chance to hang out for two or three weeks with probably the, the hippest at the time people you would ever meet. I mean, these were... These were the, the the echelon of intellectual, uh, hip, sophisticated people, and the, you know this is what nineteen fifty whatever nineteen fifty. I was nine, so that that means that was nineteen fifty four, so the mid fifties. So I got a chance to taste what there was a whole world out there that I had never known really existed. But that was, and again, growing up in in uh, Shreveport, Louisiana you know, in, in East Texas first, and then Shreveport, Louisiana, it was like, oh my God, you know, there's a whole other world out there, certainly than, than I was uh, uh, aware of or subject to. Uh, that said, uh, I was actually kind of the child actor in Shreveport. And, you know, I got, I got uh, the, the, I played the role of Lewis in The King and I in, a, in the um, sort of the opening summer theater for, at Centenary College in Shreveport that actually had the Marjorie Lyons Playhouse was a, even back then a million dollar playhouse, which was brilliant and gorgeous. And it was a semi-professional uh, event. So they had the people who designed the sets for the King and I, you know, from New York, the people who did the choreography for the New York production were there. So I got a chance to meet some, you know, folks and in a, in a world that was way out beyond me. So, you know, again, I felt uh, there was a big world out there somewhere that I wanted to explore and find out about, you know, through all those different avenues. I don't, I don't want to make this too long a story, Marks, but those were some of the things that, that led to that. So then 
uh, I got into college, decided to I picked a liberal arts college, one that was kind of radical in its time, new college in Sarasota in Florida. And uh, no grades, design your own education, uh, format your own stuff. Started out as a philosophy major because, again, I'd come back from Switzerland and sort of had been introduced to this whole bigger world of intelligentsia and, you know, sophisticated thinking, you know, about the world and the truths of the universe, et cetera, you know, at least through those lenses. And um, took a philosophy cast class and, and I thought I was going to be a philosophy major, but it turned out I, and I, got, it, I got kind of bored because the philosophers wound up proving their original hypothesis <laughs> using using their original hypothesis. I was, well, that's kind of a circle, you know what? It's like, hmm. But what was more fascinating, and also because I had a good, turned out to be a really good friend. He was my academic advisor. He was the historian. He taught history at the college. He'd been head of the history department at Purdue before he came uh, to this little college. And, and he was an intellectual historian, you know, history of culture, history of thought. And so forth. And he turned me on to that that aspect. He had me read Oswald Spengler's *The Decline of the West*, which was the one of the first uh, books that talked about cultural paradigms. I don't think he used the word paradigm in the translation, but it was basically about there are cultures are living, and that each culture has its own framework of how it views the world, and that that worldview shows up through the art, the architecture, the philosophy, the mathematics, the science. Uh, the architecture, you know, whatever, it shows up through everything in that culture. You could find the DNA, you could find a signature that was unique to that culture. And so I was fascinated by that. So that was another thing that just, you know, kind of validated the fact that hmm, there's stuff out there you can't see. And of course, this is the 60s. So drugs, you know, psychedelics, you know, uh, was, and I did a whole lot of that, uh, not to escape, but to explore. So to me, it was like, wow, they can give you a gate or a window into stuff you can't see and see it in a whole different way, which was, which was actually quite the truth. And now there's kind of a resurgence of interest in that, as you know, you know, with mushrooms and all that stuff that people are doing. Uh, I haven't done any of that since 1971. So, you know, uh, alcohol is my only drug of choice <laughs> these days, you know. but it was an exploration. So I knew that was there. And then I got into graduate school. I was in American intellectual history. I was studying the history of Sort of American thought, which to me was fascinating. That was my that was my major in in the undergrad, and I got into grad school in Berkeley. Of course, Berkeley sixty eight heady time, you know, to be there, and that was fascinating to me to start to study the culture. And I loved the American culture. I, there was something about it that was quite unique. When I came back from Switzerland, which was not real different, you know, as a culture, you know, from the U.S., but it was different enough that I came back and said, "There's something particularly special and unique about the U.S." about its thought process and whatever. And uh, I had to do a thesis for my bachelor's degree. My bachelor's thesis was the decade of disenchantment, US in the 1920s. Hmm. And, you know, I read all the Fitzgerald and all the Dreiser and all, you know, I read all the writers that were writing then. And of course, back in the 1920s, people were going, you know, the, the middle class sucks. You know, America, you know, is, is naive. And all these people were escaping the U.S. to go to more cool places like Paris and whatever and smoking dope and doing all kinds of cool stuff, which was actually quite American. You know, the first communes were in the upper New York State in the 1800s. <laughs> you know, so the whole idea of sort of rebelling against the, the, the establishment was so American, really. And so it was funny because, of course, as you know, the mid 
you know, I graduated in 68 uh, in terms of from new college. You know, all the hippies were, oh, America sucks. It's terrible. Everybody's leaving the country. Everybody's smoking dope. Everybody. And they said, and I said, guys, you guys are still American. You, you know, you don't, you don't realize, you know, what, what you're a part of. And so I sort of knew that even back then. So again, that's why I was fascinated with the American culture, that it was a culture that, that spawned that kind of stuff as part of its DNA. And I think it's still there. Uh, it, it's, it's metal is being tested now, but uh, that's okay. That's happened. That, that's nothing new about that. You know, there've been all those swings that happened for, since we started. Would you say that you had a transformative experience in Switzerland and new college in your, I mean, where, where was that? There, there has to be something that shifted for you, you know, to use your words, paradigm shift or an epiphany at some point, perhaps not consciously that made you say there's more than we see and we can create our own reality. What would you say that happened? You know, there was no one big epiphany. It's just a long string of epiphanets that I had. You know, and one of the first was, I think, when I was in high school. You know, I I belonged to the, I went to the belonged to the Methodist Church in Shreveport downtown. I joined the Methodist Church because they had the cutest girls in the choir, and I love singing in the choir. And you know, what can I say? But I, you know, but I had, you know, I had what you would call a spiritual experience, or two or three just by myself in the church itself and with that and you know sort of looking at the Christ and 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 it having a sense of something happened inside of me uh, that you know for the next few days I was washing dishes and I was being sweet and I was being I was being nice to everybody and I couldn't help it because when I've been touched by something that said there is a reality there you know on on that level that's interesting so to find that for a second you had two or three quote unquote, spiritual experiences in the church would made you nicer. How would you define them? If I was an anthropologist and I'm going to write down your behavior set that shifted from before and after spiritual experience, what would we see other than you washing dishes? Selflessness. So, so to you, a spiritual experience is the act of being selfish? Self, selfless? No. If you have a spiritual experience, you can't help it but be selfless. Explain. You start to... But you start to realize, well, not consciously, but it was like, wow, I, I, I suppose a very high a sort of empathy on steroids. Mm. That's interesting. Right. So I, I, there was work to be done, uh, you know, so the sense of service, interesting. you know, and over, over the years, you know, in the last, you know, golly, I'll be 75 in a few months, you know, and over all these years, uh, you know, I've discovered that just being of service is something that opens you up to the inner realities and the spiritual realities more than anything else. Uh, you know, and I, I hesitate on who your audience is and who they're listening to this. A lot of people are sort of allergic to the idea of spirit. I use it with a small s. You know, basically, and by the way, there is my own experience of the spirit. But again, that came a little bit later uh, where, you know, what I tasted back then as a kid, really, as a, as a young, as a teenager, I tasted something that like that and then um again college as i was studying things i, I kind of got into it and again this is the 60s in berkeley so i thought you know I, I decided i wanted my own enlightenment instead of just studying people who had theirs so and i figured at the point that point that, that academia was not where i was going to find it so that's when 
you know, I kind of had a, a little bit of an epiphanet and said, this is not where I want to be. I'm, I'm doing something simply because I think that's what I should be doing and what looks hip and cool. You know, I was planning on being a hip history professor with a pipe and a dog and the, and the kids around the fireplace and having conversations, you know, intellectual conversations. That was sort of my, my best picture of where I thought I was going to go. At some point, uh, then I met someone while I was still in school and he kind of took to me and decided he's the guy that taught me karate. Mm. And he sort of, sort of saw something in me. He had been studied as a psychic by the University of Pennsylvania. So he seemed to be able to see things that other people couldn't see. And um, after hanging out with him and starting to study karate, I then began to have some internal experiences that were, I would say, a graduated version of what I'd had as a kid. Oh, wow. Seeing things I hadn't seen before in a whole different perspective and you know, being essentially awakened in my heart in a way that I'd, I'd never experienced before and seeing things quite uh, quite clearly you know, on another level and realized, and that was not drug-induced, that was, was a real thing, you know, sort of sort of Paul along the road to Damascus. It was like, badam. It's like, oh, my God. And then uh, I didn't know where that came from, what to do with it. I knew that that was quite real, and I wanted to experience more and more of it. So I uh, started trying to explore that, so meditation, martial arts, and so forth, to try to find what this was and what to do with it. And I didn't have a really good reference point. Hmm. So I kind of ran, ran off the rails back then because, you know, I started having these strange experiences and people basically said, David, you're acting quite strangely. I said, no, I'm not. You're the one acting strangely. <laughs> you, know, you know, sometimes the crazy people are the most sane people and it's the people that think they're the sane are the ones that are really out, off the rails. That's a fact. Right. So was it kind of like, it seems to me, right, that throughout your young history, you know, from Switzerland to New College to the karate instructor, all these things, you were sort of living in between these two worlds from the, you know, the, the quote unquote physical world and sort of the world that's, that can be had, but not seen necessarily. And then you became fascinated with, you know, I guess maybe, maybe not this way, but somehow how to, I guess, not just create a spiritual experience, but how to create a different world. I mean, something must have gotten you to think, you know, what I see isn't all there is, right? I can do something, I can effectuate that, I can, you know, I can change it, I can influence it. Well, it didn't really happen in that order, Marx. You know, I had those experiences and I didn't know what the hell to do with them. It wasn't about, wow, now I can. Right. It was like, wow, now there is. <laughs> and I, yeah, very different, very different. And the, the, okay, now, you know, that created an agonizing um, sort of existential dilemma. Called, now, what do I do now that I have a sense of what is? So now you understand what is, which is different than what we think. What no, I, I, I tasted what is. I didn't understand it. Oh, my God. Fair enough. You know, I still don't understand it. Well. I mean, I, I don't have the total grasp of whatever that was. I, I haven't, I've been graced with a minor portion of awareness of it. Okay, so so help me understand when you say is, what specifically do you mean? Well, we are all one. It's all love. There's there's a universal flow. There's a something called uh, the ocean of love and mercy. We're all in it. We're all in this one thing. And it's all connected. There's a reason for all of it. 
everybody, nobody's going to be lost. Everybody's on their own path to become more self-aware of what that is and to engage with it more over eons and eons of lifetimes. But it's there. I've tasted it. I saw it. Once you see that, you go, oh, well, okay. What do you do with that? <laughs> so, so is your is your understanding or not understanding, but is your awareness of it now that you're wiser, right? Not to say older, but definitely wiser. But is your awareness of it different? And if so, because I mean, look, one of the things, you know, being a GTD practitioner and student, right? Which, and I told you, I've tried to break the system a thousand times, right? I just can't do it. It's, it is, it's, it's unbreakable. It's infallible. There's a thousand ways to do it. I went from digital to paper. I mean, we can talk about all kinds of stuff, but really it is an infallible methodology or process, right? So, you know, one thing about GTD and what you sort of uncovered and exposed to the world is this capacity to be okay in any situation if you apply the methodology correctly. And that can sometimes lead to laziness in a bad way or laziness in a good way, right? Sort of lethargy, presently engaged, all these components of it. But now you're 75, you're wiser when you came out with this. I mean, what, 20 years ago, whatever it was, you're, you know, I'm 50, so you're a little older than I was, or they're about the same age. Are you now thinking that that there's a different level of understanding or experience with this is versus 25, 30 years ago? And if so, how does that affect your day-to-day materialization of, of things? In other words, you know, David has this concept, is going to put it into action at age 50 or now at age 75. What's the difference? Are you just less giving a shit and more lackadaisical? I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I think what Emerson said, patience is the hallmark of a mature man. True. So you want to learn patience, get older. You know, that, that's, that's why, by the way, uh, you just serendipitously and just ad hoc. One of my favorite new books is uh, Successful Aging by Daniel Levitin. Oh, interesting. And then he talks about that there's a, num- there's a part of us that actually gets better the older we get. Obviously, the, the body started to decay and all that. But otherwise, and, you know, he's a big GTD champion. And one of the elements of it doesn't automatically happen that you get better as you get older. But one of the things that will make you a lot more alive and contributory as you get older is the third element of the five sort of key personality elements, which is conscientiousness. And he said, GTD, and even in his book, he mentions, hey, you want conscientiousness, you want to build it, read David Allen's Getting Things Done. You know, come to manage your life in a way, to you're managing your commitments, not letting things fall through the cracks. And that's one of the things that actually keeps people more alive and engaged and, and, and you know, contributory in their older years is their ability to be able to do that. But that's not necessarily learned or natural. But that's not necessarily natural or automatic behavior. You actually learn how to do that. You can learn how to be more conscientious in your life in that way. So anyway, I kind of went off on a, a little bit of a, of a of a rabbit trail there. But um, so bring me back, you know, Marks. So so what, what would you like? What would you like me to to, to answer or yeah. say or reflect on? Okay, so two things. One is earlier on, I want to ask you if you. If you think spirituality with a small s is invoking Emerson's law of compensation, right? If you think that 
there's something to that, right? The world is, you know, the more you give, it comes back to you in a different component. And the second thing is, you know, at, at 75, look, there's a certain peacefulness about you. And, you know, when you and I met, gosh, I don't know, 2001, when we ate a cha-cha-cha and you gave me your wallet and, you know, I paid you a thousand bucks for half a day and you showed me a little org chart, which was, you know, one of the most amazing experiences for me just to hang out with you. You know, it's, it's a different David Allen, obviously, but are you better today at making the reality come true from what you conceptually believe? Were you better back then or are you less inclined to do that today because you just care for less things? Mm. Not quite sure how to answer that. It's a good question. It's all pretty much the same. I mean, you know, when I first met Catherine, you know, we were had, had sort of different lives at the time, but this is more 35 years ago anyway. And we were walking, you know, to her uh, place of business in New York. I was doing some training there. And uh, I was talking about uh, why I was so enthralled with this thing that then became GTD. We didn't call it getting things done back then. It was just this methodology. We didn't call it getting things done until we wrote the book and titled the book that. <laughs> right. Right. So then we then we called it that. But I was still doing this work. And to me, even back then, I was aware that this tapped into something that seemed to be universal and seemed to be real. As you said, you can't punch a hole in this because it's like gravity. It's true. It, it, and and I think one of the reasons it's true and one of the reasons it has a sublime aspect to it, if you're interested in that, is that you know it deals with the two things that in my experience, and this is just my working hypothesis, I haven't disproved it yet, is that we're here to do two things, complete and create. So completion and creation are the two key elements, I think, of the human experience. You're here to finish what you've put in motion and you will be held accountable for what you have put in motion, whether it's this lifetime or 6,000 others. Uh, you're, you, know, you make a commitment, you're going to eat it or you will eat it if you don't manage it or don't handle it well. It's yours. So that's a truth that the completion aspect of finishing things is big. But then if you finished everything, you'd be very clear, but then you can't stop creating. Because as long as you're conscious, you're still going to be focusing on something and that whatever your focus is, is creating it. You know, and you could, you could give, there are 6,000, if not 6 million different models that have not, another way to describe what that's about. As you focus, so it becomes, you know, as you think, so you are, you know, oh my God, you know, so the, the focus aspect. So once you're clear, where do you point yourself? Because you can't stop focusing if you're conscious. You're focusing on something if you're conscious, you're, you, you have your attention on something. You know, whether it's the, the food you want to eat or whatever it is, you know, only when you go to sleep or you go unconscious, do you stop at least a conscious focus. I think there's still an internal focus that goes on even when you're unconscious and even in the dream state. Uh, but that said, those are the two key elements. And so I happen to have figured out or at least uncovered or discovered something that has those two key elements. When Lockheed, the head of HR at Lockheed, saw what I was doing and said, David, you know, can you take what you did and, and frame this into some sort of a uh, educational seminar? Because he saw the results I was producing for people individually. He said, that's what we need in our culture. We need more stability, more control, more focus, more space, more ability to focus on the meaningful stuff. So I said, sure. So I said, okay, let me design a training. He asked me to design a productivity training, which I did 
a two-day productivity training for managers and executives. And I said, if I only had two days with somebody, what would I want them to know? I want them to know about completion and I want them to know about them, the, the power of their focus, what they put their attention to, you know, and then be accountable for that. Okay. Just to make sure it's the, the right stuff. So, so the night, the neat thing is I don't have to talk about spirituality. I don't have to talk about any of that. I just have to walk into your desk and say, Marks, what's on your desk? Why? What's it saying to you? Why is it there? Why didn't you throw it away? And I'm going to get you to, you know, get you into the completion creation modality without having to even talk about any of this. And then once you do that, you're going to find yourself in the driver's seat. Wow. Okay. Instead of having this piece of paper hum at me, whisper at me, yell at me on the corner of my desk, I'm now going to be in charge of it. What is it? What's, what's my commitment about it? What am I going to do about it? And I put you back in the driver's seat as opposed to being the victim of the things you've allowed to come into your life. How cool is that? Okay. Right. And th that's, that hasn't changed in 35 years. Still, still there. Well, I don't think it'll ever change. I mean, it's sort of a universal truth, right? Well, if ever, if everybody got this right away, I'd have to find another job. So, <laughs> you know, you know, as, as, you know, as people in the training business say, you want slow learners with money. <laughs> that's actually pretty funny. Okay. So, so we have this completion and creation. Uh, Wallace Waddles wrote a book called the science of success back, you know, 18, whatever it was. And he said that when you think of something, just a conceptual thought of it means it's already, he called it these sort of, you know, uh, what was it? I don't know, matter or, you know, basically things. He said, when you conceive something, it's already there for you. You now have what he calls, quote unquote, act a certain way. And he didn't say, you know, pursue the thing you want, just wherever you are, do the activity, act a certain way with the intention of getting it. You know, if you want to make a million dollars, but you only have a job that pays you this, don't worry about it. Just do your job and it will show up. So my question is, do you believe, because you often say that getting things done is not about getting things done, but about being appropriately engaged with whatever it is you're currently doing and that some of the coolest, most amazing things you will do, meaning not just David, but anybody doing GTD methodology is never on your list, but you got to have a list in order to be able to do intuitive things, right? So you can't do one without the other. So do you then subscribe to the belief or the philosophy that you can set an intention or a goal, go about doing other quote unquote projects that may not may or may not relate to that, but eventually end up there anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've lived my life with affirmations and so forth. I learned about affirmations in 1981 and have used them ever since. As a matter of fact, getting things done was written. The first things I wrote were the reviews. Right. Right. So I, I know the, come on, that's how you get out of the room. You see yourself out of the room, right? And then, hey, I'm not out of the room yet. So how do I get there? And it creates this cognitive dissonance that gets you out of the room. But you have the vision first. You can't stop visioning. You can't stop affirming. Everything, you're all, you're self-talk. Most people talk to, them, talk to themselves 50,000 50, times a day. So whatever your self-talk is, is reaffirming or recreating or creating whatever the new game is that you want to play. How soon that shows up may be your karma. Maybe, hey, you don't get that this lifetime. Or, wow, you're going to get that sooner than you thought because you're tapping into sort of universal mind. And in my experience, universal mind, the fact that you think of something is true. There, there is a whole level that we're at. And, they, you know, <laughs> my 
my sort of working hypothesis of the game plan that I've learned from my spiritual coach, who was my coach for 50 years, who really understood this much better than me and, and got a grasp of it. You know, there's a level called the mental level. Uh, and the mental level is a, is a level in spirit. I mean, we're, okay, I'll say it. You and I, what you and I are experiencing right now is 10% of who you and I really are. Of course. <clears throat> then we got another 90% that's going on out there right, on other levels that we're engaged in. And those other levels are uh, an emotional level. There's a mental level. There's a, an unconscious level. There's multiple levels that we exist on in these other realms. And the mental realm is a very elegant realm. It's a very elegant realm. And so what you think, yes, has a lot of power to it. And, you know, that, that it may not be the only power. So you can't absolutely say just because I think of something that's going to occur. I mean, everything's possible, but not everything's permitted. Interesting. So, so then, so then you've had this, you know, I mean, you're, you're obviously 70, you're going to be 75 in a few months. What December, isn't it? December something. I think you're not quite yeah. this. Um, so you'll be set, so at 25 years old, you began the spirituality quest with a small s. And so, so really, so in reality, you've sort of been a spiritual being that sort of tricked himself and others into getting to that other plane through the GTD methodology to a certain extent, right? Because, well, if that's your focus, you don't have to. Right, right. I understand. In other words, no, but I'm talking about right. David Allen, the man himself, right? If we're writing a biography, sort of the intention for you was how do I deal with this other thing that is, right? What do I do with this now? You said earlier. And yeah. hey, by the way, just sort of just went down this rabbit trail, pulled on a thread, and voila, GTD sort of shows up. And the interesting thing about GTD, look, when I first read the book, I was elated and perturbed at the same time. And I have all the original, right? Elated because I think I told you it was the greatest personal growth book, you know, that I'd written a long time. Like, hey, this is personal. This is nothing. That's nothing to do with, you know, getting things done. It's all about personal growth. And then I thought, God, I hate this because now I'm held accountable to all the stuff that I've got to think. And, you know, I love the Palm Pilot. I missed the Palm Pilot, by the way. I think it was amazing. Me too. Yeah. No kidding. And so, but really sort of, you know, being, because being, and I'm, I'm going to, I hate to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. The better you get at GTD, and this is going to be a loaded statement, the better person you become. Well, you become more aligned with who you are. More authentic. It, and every it, Yes, and everybody is a good person. I mean, everybody everybody is already a spiritual being. You don't have to go anywhere. All you have to do is relax you know, and realize that. But that relaxation and realization is a lifelong, if not multi-life process. Okay, so, so you get to who you, you don't have to change who you are, Mark. You, Mark, you, you've never had to change who you really were with GTD. What GTD did was it allowed you to clear up uh, some noise, perhaps, that allowed you with your intention to pay attention to the more subtle aspects of life. It gave you more freedom to do that. But it doesn't require you to do that. It allows you to do that as long as that's your intention. Yes, fair enough. And Bruce Lee once said, I've got a, I got a, a statue by Bobby Carlyle called The Self-Made Man, because I love art, not so much painting, although we have a couple of Picassos and, and Tony Hopkins. Anyway, it's, it's this sort of, it's over there, but I won't get it. It's this man chipping away at himself, and he's sort of a block, like a man called Michelangelo making himself, right? And, and Bruce, Lee, Bruce Lee said it was a daily decrease. I believe that that's sort of what GTD does is sort of chip away at the unessential stuff that isn't you to reveal the true you. 
that being the case, at least that's my my metaphor for it, how does David Allen define success? Achieving desired results. Simple as that, right? Simple as that. You want to go you go to a party to boogie, you don't boogie, it's an unproductive party. Unsuccessful party. You go to a vacation to relax, you don't relax. That's an unsuccessful vacation. Success just says, hey, I want to be relaxed this afternoon. You don't relax this afternoon, then you would, you know, I would still consider from my <laughs> rather broad universal, you know, small s spiritual perspective, everybody's fine wherever they are, whatever they're doing. You know, it's all on course. You know, it's just being able to recognize that so that you, then are able to then leverage that more in the directions you'd like to, to be able to be more aware of what that's about. That to me is what the game has been. And I'm still in that game. As I said earlier on, I'm still a beginner. So if somebody wants to make a million dollars in a year and they don't achieve it, are they then a failure? Depends. On? They probably learned a bunch, you know, with their perspective. You know, success has a lot to do with your, your perspective. You know, perspective is the slippiest and most valuable commodity on the planet. There are no mistakes. Explain there are no mistakes. Then there are just experiences you have. You know whether you want to keep um, doing that thing that produces something that is not what you want. That's called nuts. True, right? Isn't that definition of crazy? It's called you keep doing something <laughs> expecting the same result and yada 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 yada. It's like well, duh. But anything you do, as long as you learn from it, is highly successful. If success, but you have to then frame success as I want to grow myself and be an expanded human being. If that's your game, then anything is going to probably be that as long as you're conscious about what you're doing and pay attention to it. And then course correct if you you know don't get the results you're after. But wasn't it, you said success was achieving, but now if the person doesn't achieve that, they're a failure. So are you going to? No, no, no. no. They didn't frame what achieve means. Achieve means I'm going to go grow. I'm going to jump off the end of this pier. And the, the water may be too shallow, maybe too deep. I don't know. But I'm going to learn something when I jump off the end of this pier. So you jump off and you go, glub, glub, glub. I wasn't able to have the fun I thought I'd have at the end of the pier. But you learned a bunch of stuff. And some part of you says, you know, that's really good. I'm not going to jump off the end of a pier before I check how deep the water is. So that was successful as long as some part of you says just growing and learning from your experiences is actually what you're about. And what would mean success to you? So is it more about doing than achieving? Well, I think you can't stop doing. You're doing all the time. If you're here on the material world, you're, you can't stop doing. Uh, achieving, you know, just to, we may just be in a mixture of terminology here. Uh, if, you, if you want to relax and be happy and you just take a breath and you feel a little bit better and more relaxed, yeah, you just achieved something. But you may look like you're not doing anything. So it, it just says, there's something I'm after, or there's something I'd like to experience that I'm not experiencing yet. And as long as you feel like you're moving and you're engaged appropriately <laughs> with the process, you know, you're successful. I mean, come on, it's another version of the simple, look, you know, the, it's, it's more the trip, not the end game. That's the pro it's the process, not the end result. That's the fun. So a guy, a guy named Bill Bailey, God rest his soul, had a quote that he said, life is nothing more than a collection of experiences, their intensity, and their frequency. Right? So life is nothing more than experience, intensity, and frequency. So then do you believe that 
getting things done truly is more about what people want to experience, what they want to feel rather than the accumulation or the achievement of material things? It might be. But see, GTD is much more neutral than any of that. Explain. I don't, I don't tell people what they should be thinking or doing. I ask them what's got their attention. I'm just going to find out what's, what, what do they have their consciousness wrapped around and let's get them appropriately engaged with it. So it's a judgment-free yeah. methodology that says, hey, look, man, whatever you want, whatever's got your attention, whatever it is that you're dealing with, that's up to you. That's okay. That's your journey. I'm just going to help you get there more elegantly and efficiently. I'm going to, I'm going to get you into a clearer space so you can recognize what that is much better and be able to access your intuitive intelligence instead of being driven around by latest and loudest like a pinball in a bad pinball machine. So, okay, so let me then, you know, there's a, there's this whole school of thought about the 80-20 principle. And Richard Koch, who wrote the 80-20 principle, is a good friend of mine. In fact, he's on, he, I have him for a podcast tomorrow. I'd love to get you two together, by the way. <laughs> um, you would love him and he would love you. And uh, I think you are kindred spirits, although the vernacular you use may be different. But there is a, a huge school of thought out there for young entrepreneurs, particularly, who misunderstand the 80-20 principle. They get in trouble all the time. And, they, you know, they get in trouble because they believe that they need to ignore the 80%, focus on the 20%, and that gives them to success and happiness. But the truth of the matter is you cannot ignore the 80% because if you're inappropriately engaged with it, it's going to take up more of your time. And therefore, you can't do the 20%. And it leads to depression, anxiety, much like Tim Ferriss has experienced because he tried to ignore the stuff and then he suffered from, you know, insomnia and, and all the, and as much as, as he's great, I don't think he understands that, that concept yet. So how can somebody apply the 80-20 principle to life using the GTD methodology? And I have an answer, but I'm curious as to what your answer is. I don't use the 80-20 principle. I just, you know, get everything out of my head, clarify it all, organize it all, see the whole gestalt of all of my commitments at the multiple levels that I'm aware of them, and then make a good in judgment call, an intuitive judgment call about what to do. I may look at all that and go have a beer instead of doing any of that. Isn't that the 80 20? Is that, is that, is, of course. It, right. It, it's not 80, it's not 80 20. How about 199? Right, exactly, exactly. Right? It's like, come on, here's the thing to do right now. Now, I understand what that means. That says, look, some of the things you do are going to give you relieve more pressure than others. Some of the things are going to give you more of a high value than others. Okay, you, you can't fight that one. You know, some ways to swing your golf club are going to give you a longer drive than others. You know, so everything has potentially Im improvement opportunity in that way or to think about it in that way. But I have a very simple priority formula. It's called what's most got my attention right now? What do I need to do to get back to clear space again? And you don't always stay in clear space. If you did, you weren't playing a big enough game, probably, because you know, as Marks, come on, you're you're the poster child of the typical GTD advocate, the people who need it the least. You're already you were already the most aspirational, organized, positively focused <laughs> person around. That's what attracted you to this, because you knew you could do more, because you were already doing a lot, but you knew there were limitations in terms of your ability to be able to get it done. So that's why the good news about my career has been I'm, the people most attracted to what I do are the people who need it the least are the coolest, most you know, productive, busiest, you know, classiest people you'd ever meet, you know, because they're the folks that are most interested in this. You just said that it's always about getting back to clear space, but if you are always in clear space, you're not playing a big enough game 
And when you add that to completion and creation, it is a cycle, isn't it? Of course. Right? That, that it's, it, the ideal is not to be in clear space, but to be clear and unclear, clear and unclear, clear and unclear, sort of the yin-yang. Exactly. Exactly. It's like the, that's why we use the surfing analogy. A, surf, a good surfer is going to go take a big wave, but then he knows he's going to lose some of them. But he's got an ankle tether, so he doesn't lose his board and he get back on fast. So the more you know you have a board, a good board, and the more you know you can get back on your board quick, the bigger the bigger waves you're willing to surf. But this is why you call it a game, because if the yeah, it is a game, right? So if the idea is to take on more, to complete more, and create more at a bigger level, in other words, because it, it is true, I always strive for that clear head, because once you taste it, as you've said a thousand times, it's very tough to get away from it, right? I mean, you you know, you 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 have anxiety, you need to uh, you know mind up you know this is i mean it is what it is right so it's sort of this this interesting ever present cycle huh wow what a, what, a, what an interesting concept how do you define happiness i don't know I, I don't i don't dwell in the happiness game happiness is to me the way a lot of people see it it's fleeting it's an emotional state as happy as you are that's as depressed as you'll get <laughs> No, it's true. You know, and that's why a lot of the motivational rah, rah, everybody get happy, everybody jump around. There's no negative stuff. That's why if you haven't read The Antidote yet, that is an absolutely critical book. He's a great writer. You know, yeah, Oliver Berkman is fabulous. He's a GTD, by the way. Yeah, I figured. I read, I read it because you recommended it. And, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not about happy, happy, rah, rah. Right. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with feeling fun and laughing and jokes and, you know, yeah, and all that. That's good. That's, that's good stuff. Laughter is, you know, is highly curative, you know, about all, all kinds of things. But I like the idea of satisfaction. Find somebody in their flow. They're not looking happy. Mm. It's so true, right? Because they're in the flow. Yeah. They're, satis they're satisfied. Appropriate action. If you look at the etymology of the word, satis is enough and faculty is to do the old Latin. Right, so you're doing you're doing appropriately, and some 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 part of you is comfortable. You know, so nothing wrong with happiness, nothing wrong with depression either. It's just you probably don't want to hang out there because it's not very healthy. There's nothing wrong with any of these. These are just human experiences. So, uh, so that's what I think about happiness. Okay, so if 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 now we look at David of today, from the moment he gets up in the morning and engages in his habits, because. You know, there's there's this whole movement, right, David? Now about habits, and I mean, and you've said this, uh, you know, ad nauseum about how if you could just get a pill that would get somebody to do the the habits of GTD, it would be the most amazing thing in the world. You'd be a gazillionaire by now, run the world. The whole, so I get it. So what what habits do you have today throughout the day that you didn't have at you know fifty five or fifty twenty five years ago, and I know you're, you're going to give the philosophical answer of they're the proper habits for me today and they were the proper habits back then. Uh, what does that look like? And is there anything you'd like to change habit-wise to get, quote-unquote, better results? No. It's all the same thing. I haven't changed how I've done what I've done, getting you know new input to zero it out so I could stay as clear as I can and ready for surprise. That's been true since I uncovered this stuff 30 years ago. So that's not changed. The content's cool, you know. So it's not, but I don't live a boring life. You know, believe me, there's lots of stuff to engage with. Once you get that game of engagement, then it's like create. See, I throw myself out of my own comfort zone 
regularly. You know, it's like, wow, write a book. Oh, man, what to do? You know, I almost became an alcoholic writing a book about stress-free productivity. <laughs> <laughs> Just go tell yourself to write the great American novel and see how, how, see how clean your toilet's going to get. How often do, or how long do you read every day for if you read every day or how do you decide what to read and how long to read? Just whatever I feel like doing. So, so really, so David, so, and I don't know if this is true when, when you and I first met God a bazillion years ago, you wake up and the little thing you do is obviously, you know, get up in the morning and then you have your calendar, right? Which is your hard stuff like this and other things. And everything else is just based on your list. You genuinely, truly do live a life of freedom in the sense that you do whatever you feel like doing other than the commitments. Who doesn't do that? A lot of people don't do that. Don't you do that? I do. What are they, yeah, what are they doing? They're doing stuff they feel like doing. They may not, that, that <laughs> they may, they may feel like doing stuff that makes them depressed because that's their habit, but they still feel like doing it or they wouldn't do it. But I, I understand. I understand what you're saying. I don't want to. I don't want to play around with the concept too much. I, no, I, I like this. I think it's. I think it's actually a really important point. I, I mean, obviously, look, you're smarter and, and wiser than I am, and I never thought of it that way. When somebody goes to work that they hate, they're still doing what they feel like doing. Good. Whether it's a guilty feeling or that, who knows what feeling it is, but it's still what they feel. Sure. I never thought of it that way. Well, it, it, a lot of people are choosing the the, <laughs> the best of bad options. I hate going to work, but if I didn't go to work, I couldn't pay the rent. So let me stop going to work and then you go broke and then you get kicked out of your house or whatever. So, you know, a lot of people are taking the, you know, the kind of the, the best of bad options, you know, not a fun way to live your life for sure. For you now, right? Cause then you do, you look, I mean, the book sold millions plus copies. You've got a different versions of it. You're world renowned, you know, you live in the place you want to live. You have the life of your dreams, you know, you do pretty much anything you want to do. I mean, you go to amazing museums, you know, and even though we have this crazy pandemic, you live a very charmed life. I'm sure not without obstacles and challenges and problems and issues because, you know, we're all human beings. What would you, what would you advise other than the current generation of entrepreneurs and business people, whatever, anybody for that matter, to read the book? And by the way, to reread it, what advice would you give them other than relax? <laughs> yeah, you, you've heard my podcast. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the more clarity that you get in your consciousness about what your ideal experiences of life would look, sound, or feel like is a really, really, really powerful exercise to do. So, you know, not only what are the material things you'd like to have or be doing, but what what do you want to be experiencing? So there's something back in the old personal growth days, you know, I was involved in insight seminars and a facilitator and a trainer and all that stuff. And, you know, one of the great things was something called symbols versus experience. A lot of people want the big red Porsche because they think that's going to give them a sense of freedom, a sense of cool, a sense of class or whatever. They get the, then they get the big red Porsche and are worried about and can't afford the insurance and worried about somebody hitting it. And Oh, my God, they're now uptighter, more uptight than ever. So they were after the experience of freedom, but they didn't get it because they just got the symbol. But they didn't focus on the freedom aspect. So. You know, it's really nice to know, yeah, I want to make a gazillion dollars. I want to create the next wonderful piece of software. I want to, you know, 
whatever the heck is you, that your that your vision might be in terms of what you're doing with your life. But I would also pay a lot of attention to what do you want to be experiencing? A sense of freedom, a sense of relaxation, a sense of class, a sense of uh, ability to uh, serve. I, mean, I, I don't know. You know, that's up to you. That's up to the individual. I don't have the formula for that. Everybody has their own. But I would say I would focus on that as much as the material things that you might want in terms of goals. Is that the difference between, I, I know you've coached some of the most amazing, intelligent, bright people in the world, some celebrities, a lot of business people, re regular housemen, you know, whatever have you. Um, other than the GTD methodology, do you see a difference between those that achieve more, quote unquote, versus those that don't achieve more? Not necessarily, because again, it comes back to your definition of what does achieve mean? You know, I know people that gave up their CEO job because they love to program. They, they hired a CEO so they could go continue doing programming because that's what they love. They were a terrible CEO. They hated it. They'd rather do what they wanted to do. So I think people are sort of following the path of their inner, their inner voice. Those are the most successful people that I know. And it, that, you know, success would mean how comfortable are they in their own skin doing what they're doing? You know, and that's that to me would be success. Yeah. So that could look that could look like anybody, anywhere, you know, as long as you're comfortable. That's why, you know, that's why, you know, again, I mean coming back to the GPD thing, not to harp on it too much, but my whole thing was get present. Getting things done is not so much about getting things done, it's about getting appropriately engaged with your life so you're present with whatever you're doing. Can you define you want to be into more? No distraction. You're cooking spaghetti, you're cooking spaghetti. You know, the old Zen thing, you know, when hungry eat, when tired sleep. <laughs> you know, how successful could life be if you actually were following that admonition? So why is being present so critically important in your mind? I don't know. It's it's a cooler place to be. You'll live longer. You, you know, I don't look too bad at 75. You know, so, but, you know, this makes life a, a lot healthier, I think. And it also... You know, I think you feel more comfortable with yourself in terms of the decisions you make and where you point yourself. The biggest stress are the stresses people give to themselves because they're not keeping their own agreements with themselves or not lined up with what they need to be doing. You know, it, it occurs to me again, you probably heard me say this, but one of my big enlightening moments in life, it was one of those driving along a freeway in Marin County, actually. And I've been agonizing for years about what am I doing? Oh my God, you know, now I've tasted this sort of spiritual life. And should I be doing just, should I be a monk? Should I, what should I do? I, I, and how do I make my living out here if that's not exactly this other thing? And yeah, yeah, yeah. And this just still small voice just came up inside of me that said, David, don't worry about any of that. You've created so much, not only in this lifetime, but in plenty of others. All you have to do is just handle what's in front of you with elegance and completion and excellence, not perfection, but just excellence, and complete it. And the next thing will automatically show up. You don't have to worry about that. I never looked back from that moment. So all I did was just notice, that's why being present just is more the end results, not the end game. It was the end result of just paying attention to what was in front of me and then engaging with it appropriately. Then I found myself present. Then I found myself more open to whatever the intuitive thing is that, that was the, the next thing I thought I should be doing or, or might want to do. And many times I didn't know whether it was the right thing or not. I was like, I don't know if this is it. Oh, come on. I don't have the answer. 
And so, again, that's why my a lot of my admonitions are to relax for the young folks listening to this, simply because I, I spent a long time not relaxing about that and should have paid if I not should have, you know, I'm, I'm no, the rungs of the ladder are great, so I can't denigrate any of them. Uh, but ultimately, it took me a long time to learn to pay attention to what it was that I wanted, not just what I thought other people wanted me to do. And just because my personality is kind of wired to be so empathetically you know, connected to other people and wanting to make them happy. I mean, I'm a people pleaser. You know, uh, I like approval. You know, 30 years, 40 years of personal growth didn't change that. It just made me more comfortable with that. <laughs> it's like, okay, that's kind of who I am, how I am. That's right. So again, just being more comfortable in my own skin and starting to trust that what I wanted to do, whether anybody else wanted me to do it or not, uh, is probably what I should be doing. And, you know, a lot of people kind of take that off the other end of the pier and, and are out doing all that and not paying attention to uh, what other people want that they might need to pay attention to. But uh, to me, that was I was on the other side of that coin. So a lot of that, I think, has to do with your personality wiring that you came in with. In terms of faith, though, David, I mean, isn't that a true moment of genuine faith? Well, it's good to have faith so that you can then test it out. But faith, you know, Faith is only is only good enough to get you to take some risk, but then you don't want to just use faith to assume that you're going to make it all better. You use faith to get you engaged, and then once you get engaged, you live and learn. You know, so. But I mean, faith is, is in my opinion, faith is having absolute, complete trust. So you had trust that if you do what's in front of you, it'll sort of just work itself out, or you know, or something positive will happen. Yeah, yeah, right. Because is well, and that that actually just started to be my experience. So, you know, that looking back, and I don't know that I was that conscious of it day to day back then, but certainly looking back in retrospect, I can say that's pretty much how I got to where I am, just dealing with all that. And a lot of that was unknown. A lot of that was, I don't know, you know, made some pretty big mistakes. Sure. Uh, but again, learned, learned from them and, you know, didn't make them again. Well, then, you know, not every, you know, every dog returns to its vomit, right? So don't repeat that. You know, it's interesting because I've only met... I just was thinking about this just now. I think three people in my life, you're one of them, Peter Daniels, another one, and Jim Rohn, who when I met them, there was just a sense of peace or control or understanding. It's hard to figure out, but it's almost that they were super comfortable in their own skin. You know, like, they're, they, I mean, they're all very loving, you know, uh, very nice. Peter's, I think, 88 now. Jim, of course, is uh, dead, but then you're 75. And there's a certain, you know, there's a certain essence about you guys that's very comfortable, very easygoing, very relaxed, very present, but also very powerful. And almost like you have complete control of your mind. And I've always tried to figure out what exactly is that? Like, why do they have that when most others who I've encountered do not? And it, it's not a sense of destiny. I think it's a sense of trust or faith. You know, you call it spirituality, perhaps. I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, beats me. Kind of the last thing a fish notices is water. So kind of the last thing I'll notice is, you know, stuff about me. And probably you would only recognize it because you, you are that too. I don't you know. usually only see, you know, you usually only see, you only recognize stuff you're ready to recognize, but you wouldn't recognize it if you didn't have that DNA yourself. Which brings back to why people are attracted to TTD are the ones who need it the least. Yeah. Because they recognize it, right? Which is really interesting because, 
you know, when, and the funny thing is when you meet a, a, a GTD practitioner somewhere and you don't, it's like, oh my God, oh my God, you too, you too. Like there's this sort of like instant love. You want to hug him and go, oh my God, I found you. And uh, But the strange paradox about that, you know, that's really true. The, the strange paradox is that GTD is so much about your own self-management and your own integrity of managing your own world that it's the most radical bunch of non-joiners you would ever meet. That is exactly correct, right? <laughs> So, believe me, and trust me, I, I, I've tried to create community and, and whatever, and it is like, it's like pulling teeth to get GTDers to hang out, you know, in any kind of community. Not that they didn't, wouldn't want to do it or contribute to it, because we've got, you know, we've got two or three thousand, two thousand people in GTD Connect, and, you know, and, and it's quite a community, and we've got a lot of old timers. And come on, you know, this summit that I did last year had, you know, thousands of people sort of participating who were attracted to the, you know not moths to the flame, but, you know, it was, you know, so there is a, you're right. There is a resonance that you have with people who sort of buy into this thing that, you know, you almost don't need to say anything. It's kind of the wink that you share. Right. But, but it is interesting. We are all eagles, right? We're sort of all mavericks and renegades. And so it's, it's very interesting. You talk about digital and paper, and I know you're, you're systemic, sorry, you are, application or digital agnostic, you don't care, the same is the same. I switched from digital to paper as an experiment because I realized, you know, for me, capturing is pretty easy to do on my iPhone and on paper, it doesn't matter, right? But uh, organizing is so easy digitally. I mean, that my list became, you know, just gargantuan. But switching to paper created a different filter of do I really want to put this in my system and how do I define and what is the next action? And so, and I know you're probably going to say you don't care, but is there a difference between somebody who does GTD electronically versus somebody who does paper? You bring up a good point. I hadn't really thought about it that way, but it's probably true. Paper just makes you more conscious yes. of what you're putting in there. And if you're sort of a digital nomad or, you know, digi, digi freak, you know, it's easy to stuff stuff in and play around with your lists and, and create more stuff and, and do that. So, yeah very possible or it's probably pretty easy for digital folks to overdo it and over organize and over structure their stuff and to play around with that i mean there are worse ways to, to waste your time but sure. um but yeah no paper has a lot of value to it it really forces you to sit down and say do i really want to make this commit but if i make this commit i'm gonna have to write it down jesus no sorry uh, i'm not, not gonna do it and if you're a digital guy you know you probably would go ahead and say, oh yeah, go bring it on, bring it on, bring it on. So I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's probably true. And also pe people who, ha who have attention um, differences. Yes. You could call it the ADD or ADHD syndrome, but those, those are just, those are not sicknesses. Those are just different styles of how we process information and how we manage our attention. And the people who have any of those kinds of pressures or issues, there are too many clicks to use the digital world, right? You're impa too impatient. In the old days, I don't know if it's still true, but in, I remember in the old days, in the mid '90s, when the web was just getting kind of getting started, people building websites. The statistics then were every click you lose sixty percent of your audience. Wow, how interesting! Right, just because you may have to click again, you may have to click again, and have to click again, right? And they don't have the patience to do that. Whereas paper is right then, right now. Let me write it down. It's done. There are no clicks, no batteries, no Wi-Fi required. It's right in front of you. And it's also right in front of your face. 
as well as giving you the tactical feel for it. Yeah, you know, I used the time time design system for twenty five years. It was elegant. Probably no better, no better list manager in the world than you know the way I set that up and the way I used it. The, you know, Meg, who's my GTD coach from GTD Focus here in the U.S., um, you know, she obviously loves OmniFocus and whatever have you. When I switched to paper, I re she, I did the, the test, right? Sequential versus associative, you know, that whole thing. So I am more associative. And when I switched to paper, I like it better because I see the bigger picture. But also, step four and five, reflecting and engaging is much easier for me on paper. It attracts me versus repels me because the filter, right, in my system is like, hey, you know, do I want to put it in there? If I don't, just go someday, maybe, right? Easy peasy, back of the book, someday, maybe, no problem. But when I look at it, there's nothing in there that doesn't say, hey, get me done. Let's get engaged in this, right? Whereas digitally, it was a because it was so easy to add stuff to it. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Which is, which is so what do you use? Do you use a, a paper planner? Do you do you just set up your own notebook? What do you what do you do? What do you use? Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's an old planner from 1984. And I just put projects on one side, actions on the other side. I love to cross things out. I have a waiting for, I have a, you know, I'm still playing with it. You know, what's interesting is at this stage of the game, I'm dangerous enough to know how to set anything up, right? And so still playing with it. Um, you know, I don't know if I'll never go back. I mean, I may go back tomorrow. I don't know. Uh, but it is it is more engaging for me. And I, it's not ubiquitous, right? The cell phone's super ubiquitous. Anywhere I want to go, I can have that with me and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but I've noticed myself ever since I started changing that. I, you know, I think I, I think you just sent me a little don on my black belt, a little extra notch on my black belt, right? Switching to paper, because it has made me more engaged. And and I also found, David, that for me, writing down the outcome and the next actions on paper is very different than when I would type them in. Hmm. Yeah, many people find that true. Yeah, the outcome changes. So you're digitally now because you're still using the same system yeah. forever in a day it's yeah. never going to change or at least you don't know it i don't know no but uh, you know it's just easy i don't even think about it i don't think system i just use it you know and you know we'll see uh, we're, we're 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 transitioning now you know we've been in a notes the I, the old ibm notes yeah. environment we're, we're going to transition over to the microsoft environment the evil empire is not so evil anymore. And there's a lot of cool. There's a lot of cool stuff that they're building into it, very integrated into their system. So a lot of stuff's going to tie into each other. So fascinating to see. So I'll be changing my system. That forces me to rethink all my list and how I'm doing it and whatever. It's always good to, I think, kind of blow it all up and then reset. You know, every once in a while, it's like moving. Yes, cleaning out. Good to delete all of my OmniFocus stuff. It was like, you know, I had to put it back on. On paper, yeah, really. So, are you, are you going to create? I know you have the book out, the implementing GTD, the teenagers GTD, of course, the rewritten version of the GTD book. Uh, you know, uh, making it all work, which I love, by the way. I think it's a, one of the, you know it's an undervalued, highly incredible book. And of course, um, the fifty-two productivity principles. I think is the name of it. Are we going to do any more books? Are we going to do any online courses? I mean, how are you now planning to continue to spread the message, if at all? Well, the, the, you know, we now have partners that are building their own online courses. And we've also built an online course, now a virtual course. And thank goodness we spent the last two years actually working it. So timing was 
you know, serendipitous that now a lot of our licensees who are doing trainings are, are taking our virtual version of this and being able to use that and sell that within their own environments, you know, which is great. Uh, so, yeah, so there's virtual. I'm still creating virtual information material. The, the, the hidden gem in GTD, I think, is the natural planning model. And I, you know, so we're we're researching right now. Is that a manual? Is that a work? Is it a workbook? Is it, what do we need to do to give that a lot more publicity and a lot more exposure? Because a lot of people don't really realize if they go back and reread chapter three of the of the Getting Things Done book. You know, it's so such gold in that model uh, to use for anything, anybody's any situation or projects or you know circumstances people are in to apply that model. So we're now gathering good you know, cases of people using it and good success stories with people doing it. I don't know what we're going to do with it yet, but I didn't think I wanted to write anything else and figure, you know, come on, I'm done. It's all, it's all out there already. And then I just really realized that's still a part of it that, that still I think could have an audience and a, and a usefulness is to get more of a focus on that. The TEDx talk I did here in Amsterdam, you know, sort of talks about that is about sort of the natural planning model. Uh, but mostly getting case you know stories of people who've used it and how they've used it and what happened when they did you know i think is the npm all the time in fact one of my action items is npm this i mean i i love it it's it's what got me being from being diagnosed almost dead and type 1 diabetic to off insulin and perfect health in less than 90 days i mean it it was you know it's pretty easy in the natural planning model so can you for the listeners can you go through the natural planning model stages real quick sure uh, and the reason it's called natural planning is that's how we do right. anything, at least in a simple level. We, we're not, it's how you get out of the room. It's how you talk, how you walk, how you get dressed. First of all, you have a purpose called be out of the room. Then you have a vision. You know, hey, I'm going to be out of the room. Then you, then, you, uh, then you brainstorm. Well, how do I get out of the room? What's the best way to walk out of here? You know, am I dressed right? Whatever. And you consider all the things that might be relevant to that. Then you organize those. Okay, here's the first thing I'm going to do. And then you take action. Yeah. And so basically, purpose, vision, brainstorm, organize, and action are how you do anything. That's how you get, that's how you cook, it's how you talk, it's how you walk. But most people don't use that same model when, when life gets a little more complex. You know, a lot of people don't ask themselves, why am I doing this project? They don't then give themselves a vision of wild success of what would success look like. And they don't necessarily brainstorm all the potentially relevant stuff that needs to be considered, you know, as they move on this. They could pretty, most people are pretty good at organizing because that's what all our, our school taught us. You know. But once you get all that out, then you organize by priorities or secrets or, or, uh, or components. You know, so you get some sort of a, you know, either small or very complex, you know, action plan. And then you have next actions on the moving parts. And there's a lot of folks that <laughs> need to improve a lot of how they then use that thought process. It doesn't take long to do, but it's not something you're born doing. It's actually something you need to learn. It's kind of a muscle you need to train. You know, I mean, it's natural. It is intuitive, but it's not conscious most of the time. Correct. So why is that the hidden gem in your view now? We just haven't focused on it that much and haven't really promoted it that much. And there's a lot of use that a lot of people could make out of it uh, if if it were more uh, easily handleable. That's why I'm thinking it you know, more like a handbook, you know, or a guide. And I don't know whether that's going to be digital or whatever. We haven't decided that yet. 
we're still just gathering some, you know, some raw data and to see what that might look like that might be the best form to be able to hand people a tool, you know, to be able to, hey, you're going to plan your wedding, use this. Hey, you, you know, you need to think through how you're going to reorganize your, your, your customer service team, use this. You know, you're going to create a birthday party for your mom. Use this. I, I would love to see a book called GTD for the Soul, kind of like Chicken Soup for the Soul. <laughs> GTD for the Soul, which would have the natural planning model as the sphere, and then all of these great stories, right? You know, different sections. Yeah. Uh, and it, I think it'd be, first of all, a huge seller. And, you know, story <laughs> that we learned. Right? Well, we'll see. That's why. Getting some good war stories, I would love to have you as a resource. If you got some good war stories to share, it would be, be lovely to hear, Mark. You know? Happy to hear, but I, I, I do think that you know I, you can't rewrite GTD because I mean it's it is done. There's no other book, right? But you can tease aspects of it. Boy, wouldn't it be great a GTD for the Soul book with the stories in the format of GTD planning model? Because I think you're right as you're speaking. I realize that maybe what what this does is help us think better. Because, you know, it's, what's the outcome? What's the next action? But what's the outcome isn't always clearly defined or better defined. And you sort of have to tease some of that stuff out. For example, when I had this, you know, the whole diabetes thing, you know, it was a really scary experience for me. And the outcome originally was manage diabetes. But when I went to do the NPM, it wasn't that. It was get in perfect health. And that's a very different view, right? A very different purpose. Manage diabetes, I have to, you know, perfect health is, hey, man, whatever shows up, right? And that would be literally books and people and, you know, I went from blah, 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 whatever have you, and then up here in this location, which I would have never dreamed of, but I did dream it with a natural planning model, right? So I think, I think you know, natural planning model really does help us think better. And that's right. I mean, that's kind of what, what the whole point of it is, right? Because GTD is about getting things done, properly engaged, yada, yada, yada. But the NPM really is, okay, great. You have this amazing methodology here to pretty much take the invisible, make it visible. And yet we want to make sure that what you're taking invisible to make visible is at the highest level. So why not use the natural planning model? Sure. I mean, I don't know. I mean, just, you know, I'm riffing. Well, people people actually use the natural planning model to come up with the next action about anything. You just could expand on it a whole lot better if you, you know, if you use that to tease out the thinking process. So you're right. All right, so last last question before I let you go, um, enjoy the rest of your day or the rest of your evening. What is the one thing you would advise people to do that you don't normally tell them to do because it's either not politically correct or you're afraid to tell them or you haven't said before in the podcast? In other words, don't give me the typical answer. I want a deep, unique answer of what you want the audience to do other than buy your book and apply the methodology that you don't normally share? Well, it's a version of relax, but I'd say relax on steroids. Give yourself reflective, meditative time. Sit back, close the door, uh, clean up anything that's on your mind as best you can so you get into clear space and then ask internally, what should you do? Listen for the still small voice that's there. Everybody has it, but it won't violate you. And if you're distracted and have your mind grazing off on all kinds of things, you won't be able to hear it. See, the world, the universe is always on. Meditation is not about stopping the world. It's about stopping you so you can pay attention to another more subtle, sublime part of the world that's always on. It's, okay. it's always there. That's a very that, river is, that river is flowing. So your ability to be able to stop, relax, reflect, meditate, 
and then shut up and then listen. That's the best advice I've ever been given. Is that to do it formally, David, to sit, cross your legs, hum, or is that just to do a mindset? No, you can do it waiting for the tram. You can do it anywhere. Once you train yourself to do it, meditation can just become your your all-day conscious process. You don't have to stop doing to meditate. The only way I've been able to get there, honestly, is doing mind sweeps. I've tried all yeah. kinds of meditation stuff. Yeah, no, that, that helps. All that helps. It helps to close your eyes. To shut out the visual stimulus, it helps to, you know, turn off the sounds as best you can, you know. But you know, oh yeah, I do. You do okay because you've been asked before if you've yeah. been. You said not formally, no. Well, no, I, I don't sit down and do you know an hour of cross legs and whatever, but I will sit back and do nothing other than listen internally, as well as doing my own sort of spiritual practices and internally. When you do that, is it walking? Is it going to museums? Is it all of the above, or is it literally? No, all, no, it's literally being very still, in a good, comfortable chair in my living room. So, okay, so last comments. I'd love to get you together with Richard Koch. If so, Richard Koch. Remember, he wrote the Eight Twenty Principle book. He's he's a very unique individual. He sold this company in his early forties, and then he took I think four or five million pounds and turned it into a half a billion dollars by working an hour a day investing. And he was a management consultant and uh, he lives with his partner in three places, but he's you know brilliant philosophical guy and just a sweet human being. I'd love to get you guys to connect. I'd like to be the president. If not, that's okay. Just because I think intellectually, you guys would just have so much fun. Um, so if I can make it happen, are you open to that? I'm sure. Why not yeah. as well? All the best things in life have come from meeting people that I didn't know before and being willing to stretch out of my comfort zone and do that. So okay. I'm not gonna stop. I'm not gonna stop. Charlie Tremendous Jones once said that the, the things that change your life are the books you read and the people you meet. That's it. So I don't know. Well, David, this has been obviously amazing. I could ask you questions for days on end. <laughs> um and this is fun, Marks. Yeah. Thank you. I think there's so much more to you philosophically and existentially that I think people don't ask those questions. And I know it's not the topic, everybody wants to be successful, make them a ton of money and things of that nature, but I don't think that's where it's at. I think, I think all that is, is a byproduct of the things that you saw as is, that you have taught and uncovered. And I think that in my own opinion, there's a few giants in the world of personal growth and development, and you're up there for sure in top two or three, in my opinion. And I really, hope more people not just read the book but begin to pick your brain about all these other things that they don't ask you about which i think underlines sort of you know i think gtd is like this this the tip of the iceberg and then the bottom of the iceberg is all of this why it happened and what's really behind all of this and i think if we can uncover that man alive right it's a whole different game and i love i love the definition of game for you and I didn't really understand until this very conversation between the completion and creation and getting clear space and, and getting, you know, off clear space. There's just so much, David. I mean, I, you know, you have changed the world. And those of us who have read the book and follow methodology are eternally grateful for this and 8,000 other lives as well. <laughs> well, thanks. I, I don't know that I deserved all that, but I appreciate your expression of it. Thanks, Marks. Yeah. True. Lovely to have you in my network. Hey, thank you. Have a great day. I'll talk to you soon, David. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye for now.